0: start the October 18th, 2023 economic development subcommittee meeting to order uh, note to residents all citizens are welcome to attend public board and committee meetings in person meetings are also live streamed and archived by Franklin TV on the Franklin Town Hall TV YouTube channel Meetings are also shown live and on repeat on Comcast Channel 9 and Verizon Channel 29 in an effort to maximize citizen engagement opportunities. Citizens are welcome to continue to participate remotely via phone or Zoom. Uh, The Zoom link is on the town website and the agenda. The meeting number. Recording in progress. The phone number is 1929-5205. Six zero nine nine. That's one nine two nine two two zero five six zero nine nine. And the meeting ID is eight eight five one two six three four four two zero. And then press the pound button. Um, tonight we have two items on our agenda, and um, the number one number one is the discussion of the home occupation bylaw. Jamie. Sure.
1: To check through the DDC. So um, we'll wait for Brian to come upstairs. Um Okay. Um can I just say one thing? Well Absolutely. We have, um so in chambers we have
0: Glenn Jones and Patrick Sheridan are with me tonight. Um I think Kobe Council Frangillo is out of town, mm-hmm. but he might zoom in. He's in Belgium. Is he in Belgium? He's really out of town.
1: Wow. Uh, yeah. Monkey uh, be <laughs> and living that life in Belden. So, yeah. um, Jamie, so, sorry. I'll uh, be wasted a few not until Brian get up here. But really quickly, I just want to, for the EDC members and folks watching at home, a couple of notes. One, tonight's um, topics are discussion. There are no proposed bylaws, there are no proposed uh, votes, there are some drafts in here, some samples. Um, but on the first topic, uh, Madam Chair, it rel- relates to a ne- both are also goals in the town council this legislative session. That's right. Uh, uh, Brian and the staff have done a little work to review the home occupation bylaw. Um, as the memo stated, Brian did a great job um, giving an overview of the past. The town, um, some years ago, had rewritten the entire bylaw. Um, and I think, um, I, I just want to set the four um, corner of the puzzle here. I think. I think we all, I hope we all realize that um, the market has changed on this issue um, and that um, we see many other municipalities work on broadening uh, home occupation. It has been discussed at this committee and others in the past. There are obviously some um, some, uh, down the river consequences uh, and positives uh, of uh, amending it. Um, I've invited tonight, not only Brian, um, but also our Board of Health Director, Kathy Liberty, um, who oversees food. Um, We've asked the DPW, uh, and Doug Martin, um, who oversee water and sewer, as well as the Building Commissioner, Gus Brown, who is the ultimate authority on these issues. Really, the goal tonight is for the EDC to be able to ask any questions or be able to comment on what they would like to see in a home occupation Mm -hmm. bylaw. Maybe what all of you are hearing from members of the community. Um, I know that there's been some frustration uh, in the past on this issue, and I also know that there's been some people um, who have had successful businesses on this issue as well. So um, that's it for me. Um, It's up to you guys to engage some of them in discussing, Um, and just having a conversation. And then Judy Barrett (coughs) will uh, pop in on Zoom probably in about a half hour or so um, to go through the 40-yard debate. Um, And she's been helping us on all of these bylaws. And I presume that Judy will also be assisting us on the home occupation uh, at some point. But um, with that as a background Madam Chair, feel free to, to talk about the memo or any other issues that people see. thank you.
0: Thank you, Jamie, um, and for the rec- record, I have Kobe, Council uh, Front is on Zoom now. Hi, Kobe, can you hear us?
2: I can't hear you, my plane just landed, I am in Logan Airport. Oh, We'll
0: great.
2: see you in a couple hours. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Stay on your phone, be no. here, be here all night.
2: So that's, it's okay. The <laughs> <laughs> you call, call Bobby, he'll pick you <laughs> up, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> take the <laughs> He's i to He's probably already here
0: in Franklin by now, <laughs> that's okay. Um, all right, so welcome, Kobe, uh, and uh, thanks for zooming in. So, Brian, would you like to go over the review
3: that you've done? Oh, that's, at, by all means, i yeah. happy to go quickly through um, yep. the research that was done. Um, as uh, Jamie mentioned, uh, Judy Barrett um, has worked with us on some zoning issues um, that towards the end of last fiscal year and the last couple months. Um, one of the issues was do some research on home occupation and the other was the 40-R uh, bylaw, and there's a couple other issues also, but these are the ones we're discussing right now. Um, and uh, she did some basic research on what other communities are doing. We did a, a little bit more and we checked out a few additional um, communities in addition to them. Mm-hmm. So there is, a, attachment B actually is basically what other communities that we research, Mm -hmm. uh, good examples of other communities. Um, One thing that I want to note is that the vast majority of things that are covered in all these other bylaws are already covered in our bylaws. It's not really, it it doesn't sound like we have even a, a home occupation bylaw. But we actually, you know, we have the, the regulation in place that covers all the same same issues. Um, you know, some people just come out with other towns' home occupation, um, you know, regulation or whatever. We we treat ours a little bit different, but it's all the regulations in there. We we treat ours as section 18539 uses accessory to dwellings, uh, and it has in there home. Professional offices, home occupation, and it also addresses parking for those type uh, uh, businesses. Uh, in t- 2009, we completely rewrote the the, the uh, this section, and um, it was approved in December of 2009 by council. So it's not that old, but obviously, a lot, a lot of changes are happening, if you will, in the uh, in the world of home occupation uh, where. 40% of the people work from home now, or whatever whatever the stat, stats are right now, it, it is a substantial amount of people working from home. But the vast majority are working in an office setting where they consider the computer, there's very little impact on the neighbors. Um, mm-hmm. So the bylaws that we have in place are to protect the adjacent property owners to regulate uh, if you can have a vehicle, a a, a, a business-related vehicle on your on your home property, things of that nature. Like one of a logo on it? Uh, yeah, I mean, okay. yeah, if you have a car with a logo, it really doesn't really matter, but if you have a truck that's gonna start early in the morning, you know, uh, it, it could impact you next year later. So mm-hmm. um, the, um, I'm gonna just go through quickly, there's a list of uh, home <coughs> occupation um, issues that are, uh that I've dealt with and as i mentioned they are in all the other for the most part all these other bylaws but they are in um ours as well um, the owner or the or the operator of the business shall reside on the premises that's a key one right there mm-hmm. the mac- maximum percentage of habitable floor area uh, of the primary residence or an accessory structure the hours of operation the specific uh, is the home occupation allowed by a right or a special permit. Um, it's a big difference. Some things are not allowed at all. Others you may be able need to get a special permit to do something out of your home. Um, is the uh, the number of persons in addition to the family members? Can you bring in a couple of additional people to work in your house? And it, you know. A lot, of, a lot of communities don't, and some that just share anything goes. So it really depends on um, what you want to do in your community. Um, retail sales on site are not normally allowed. Mm-hmm. Uh, display of goods visible from the outside of the residence is usually a no-no. You want it to look like a residence. You don't want it to look like a business. right? Uh, Restrictions on storage material and products outside the principal residence. If you're a contractor and you have a truck, do you also have piles of lumber? (laughs) Do you also have a a backyard that looks like, you know, it's got piles of stuff all over the place? Those are the type of things that are regulated really carefully um, in most communities. Uh, External uh, structure alterations uh, to the principal uh, residence. they're e- usually either prohibited or allowed, they don't deviate from the residential character. You add on a, a section to a building, you make it look like the main house or, or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, the equipment, machinery, process materials that you have, um, they, they shall not be detrimental. Uh, they will not be detrimental impacts or objectionable uh, to the neighbors in any way. You're talking emissions, um, Uh, Gas, smoke, dust, noise, electrical disturbance is one that's actually, surprisingly, I didn't think too much about that until recently, but it is something that's uh, uh, an issue. Um, Required off-street parking. If you're going to have yourself and a couple of people working in your house, Mm -hmm. you need to, they're going to show up with cars. They can't be parked out in the front on on the roadway or in your, you know, in the front of your house. You have to have, just like any other business, off-street parking. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do deal with those type of issues in our bylaw or a, a separate section. Um, if you can have vehicles, are the number and the size of the vehicles, how big can they actually be allowed? Can you actually have a, a couple of dump trucks out in the back of your house or, or not? Uh, those things are important to look at. Um, and the location of the parking, parking and accessory structures, if you do have a, a shed for instance, on a house on, on, on your property that is used for that business, it should be towards the back. It should be uh, not really uh, visible from the street if possible, things an no. injury. Um, and of course, you have somehow have restrictions on deliveries or shipments of packages, uh, which if you do, if you're doing a wholesale, distribution out of your house, you're gonna have a lot of vehicles there on a regular basis. Um, So that can be also restricted. And signage, we have we have our sign by law and it it addresses businesses in the residential areas. Mm -hmm. Uh, So those are the biggies and I I think that um, the biggest problems I've seen and is um, really uh, people trying to start up uh, a food processing plant in their kitchen and things of that nature, which are, I mean, I would love to see everybody I'd be able to do what they want out of their house, but those type of issues uh, can really be tough and they have to be um, regulated to a point. And that's where my Board of Health comes in, DPW comes in, and I step back and um, say, do what you guys have to do. Um, so on that note, I didn't know if, um, there was you wanted uh, input from any of the other uh, town staff here or a question specific to that or if you have questions uh, about the things I just presented Um,
0: I I well let me I have a lot of questions but I will go to Councilor Jones first he has his hand up thank you madam chair Um, through you Brian
4: This is obviously a lot of information and many of these many of these things uh, would easily real the phone call from a neighbor saying hey they're pissing me off somebody parked in my driveway blocked my driveway the sign is just too big the lights are too bright a whole plethora of things that can go wrong but my question really has to do with how much of an impact or has there been any research done into home occupancy of businesses and the effect it has on our on our um, commercial base. I mean we currently have, I would assume, still a fair amount of commercial space available within the community that many of these businesses could fill. I and mean, what type of economic impact would it have on already well-established commercial zoning within our community? And two, we're putting problem do so we'll talk about the neighborhood in a minute, but what type of an impact are we having on our economic development in regards to our,
3: our already existing commercial zone? Um, I don't I don't know that much research has been done. I know the American Planning Association's put out documents on home occupation and they seem to be more advocating for it in general um, and thinking it's good for not, it's, it's good for the community. It's good for the neighborhoods. It's good for everybody, as long as you keep it under control. Um, as far as the economic impact, I, I do believe that if you had half the people in town who were working out of their house, it would be good on emissions. It would be good on a variety of issues. But it would also you're also putting people to work. If you have a person that uh, has starts up a business. And he can't afford a storefront, but he still has one other person working there. That's one other person employed. Um, so um, there there are benefits as long as they are things that work with the residential neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I think it, I think it's I think I, I think it's a really good solid way to go in general as far as impacting the commercial districts. I think businesses have to get to a certain scale before they can afford to get into a storefront for the most part um, and many businesses that um, that we're talking about don't really need a storefront um, in, in everything. And if you're if you're I I don't know if you're an, you're an attorney and you you know you have something out of your house then there's no impact on the economy it's, it's right I don't think although you might have you might want to have that person, uh, you know, uh, renting an office in, in, a, in a building, filling it up a little bit more. Um, but I, I think um, it ideal for uh, home uh, contractors and things of that nature where they have a small, uh, a little office in their, in their house that they're dealing with their business uh, when they're in the building and then, you know, they don't need an extra office, uh, things of that nature. Uh, for manufacturing, small items, um, yes, be great to fill up a, a commercial building with it, but again, until you scale up to a certain point, you may not be able to actually afford the, uh, the overhead on something like that. So, there's good and bad, I guess you could say, but I think it's mostly good for the most part. Okay, I mean, I'm just, I'm just concerned that, you know, we at
4: EDC have always promoted trying to build upon our commercial base current space that we have and try and build much of our existing commercial space in order to benefit you know that, that 10% of our, of our budget as it is. Um, I appreciate the comments Brian. Uh, my other comment really kind of boils down to if this is something that we are thinking of doing um, that we put a cap on how many there can actually be within the town and that there be a proximity limitation. In other words, we're going to allow one, say, on Marvin Ave, or whatever in town, that there can't be another one immediately next door, that there needs to be, you know, basically like a six block or eight block or ten block buffer between these home occupancies. So the fact that we don't want to end up having large concentrations of these types of occupancies Within the same neighborhoods, or within the same section of town, not only that, but it could potentially pick up other, could have other potential economic impacts, kind of like what we do with the liquor licenses. we spread them out across the town, and we have a limited amount that we offer, so we could—that uh, was just one idea I was thinking—is limiting how many in and locating, thinking about where we actually limit putting them, um, so that we're not areas that are not overlapping each other or not immediately next to each other, but you know, that that would that would be the sum of sense of control from the get-go, and then we could always add more
0: if it's working out. I was gonna say I think um, mostly these are the things that we can do already. Um, I don't know if there's a li- if there's a limit. Personally it would be depend on I don't know, like for me it'd be like, Well, why can't somebody build birdhouses next to somebody who has a law office? But to me, that's okay. And then, if the birdhouse person all of a sudden needs a lot of space, then they go rent a, a larger um, commercial building. So that's this is kind of like a like how do we get entrepreneurs to be able to start their businesses so that they can move on to something else? Um, so I don't I don't really think we need to limit it, but that's we're not um, we're not there yet. <laughs> so. Um, I was just thinking of
4: that because it's something to think about at this point now before we can really start refining any kind of bylaw because we need we need to know how many of we need to know where they kind be of located so that we can kind of lay that out on a map where we would expect to find or see these. Yeah, do, well let's ask, ask Brian.
0: Um, did, do we keep track of them and do we know where everybody is and how many
3: out There, there uh, the town clerk's office has a list of doing business addresses. Yeah, you, know, you want a business in town, out of your home, you need to get a business permit for mm-hmm. to the town clerk, doing business as whatever, um, whatever it is. And there are hundreds around town. There, they, We're not talking about um, only in certain districts, only certain neighborhoods, we're talking all over town. And you, you may have them directly adjacent to your, built, your own property, and you don't even know that they're there. Right. Well, um, right, I mean, I'm what's that i, I own a
4: dba of my own well, they, yeah oh, but, so I don't. <laughs> but i don't right. okay. but, I, but i don't run a business out of my home even though my dba is listed as my home right it's not I, i'm not bringing trucks and equipment and, sure.
3: and all that stuff that stays at the shop it's, understood. Yeah. understood i um, can i respond just for a second sure sure right go ahead uh, no,
0: i'm going to go to kobe he's he's got his hand up okay. all right okay,
3: i think that um The way things are run right now, they're regulated with, through uh, the zoning enforcement officer. Uh, If you get into issues that are not allowed in a residential area, then they're just not allowed. I I don't know how many people have uh, been able to go to ZBA to actually get a business going. I'll leave that up to um, Gus. He's here, but I don't really, uh, I think in general right the way it runs now is Fairly well, in that if there are, if there are impacts, our regulation says you can't impact your neighbors. Right. Okay. So, if that becomes an issue, the business isn't going to get renewed the, the next year, or, or they, at least the town has the ability to do that. Um, as far as uh, you know, right now we're we're not as a, as a town staff right now we're not proposing any changes. We're we're actually asking. Uh, EDC to, to recommend changes if you'd like to see them. Um, I think most people in town, as far as staff are, are, they are happy for the most part with the way things are going. Um, and I went through the bylaw a lot, and I, I really don't see much that I personally would recommend changing. Um, it's and it's really, in my opinion, it's only if you're going to add additional uses that are not currently allowed right now. Mm-hmm. And that's where the issue, I think. Um, I think we need to. You, you obviously need to consider that, talk about it, and, and, and whether you recommend anything now or, or in the near future, or whatever. That's that's the EDC's recommendation to you know, decision on what to do. But um, as far as being able to manage how many home occupation businesses are on a certain street or whatever, I don't know if that's a um, possible but I mean at least because right now like I said you probably you might have four houses in a row that have them in there and they don't even they don't even know that they're impacting each other if they're working out of their back uh, their a back garage and they're making noise to the neighbors then you, that, know, right? you know it right um, and I think that that's um, so they're all individual they're all and they all need to be treated just like any other business that goes in for a storefront uh, what is what is the use? What is the impacts? Um, do they need a, you know, they need to improve the drainage in the parking lot? Do they do, you know, they, there's a lot of things we look at, and it's the same thing with the, with the, it's less things you look at when it's a home occupation, but the same process. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Thank you, Matt. Um, Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Councilor
0: Jones. I actually have something I think we could add. We want. I want to add. I think we've talked about it before.
2: But I'm gonna go to Kobe first because I said I would go to Kofi. Kobe. Sure. Thank you. Um, yeah. Uh, and and I think you know, Brian, thank you for for all um, the team work on, on this and we together some other examples. And I think both you and, and Castle Hamlin uh, touched upon the, the benefits of these. Right? Uh, home occupation um, allows us to improve vibrancy and add economic growth by lowering the barrier to entry to start new businesses uh, and, and perhaps even add, add some light to um, some, some neighborhoods. Yeah.
0: Oh, he's gone. And
2: there he we goes. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe he'll come back. I want you. Oh, Sorry about that. We missed you, we yeah, no. you. Go ahead. Yeah, I got a phone call. Yeah, you know, a culture that, that tends to over they're on the side of uh, too much caution um, in terms of impact on neighborhoods uh, stifles some of that, that vibrancy and, and growth. Um, and so that's why that's why we, we wanted to revisit these. I have three things uh, in looking at our bylaws to potentially uh, improve on it, in my mind. Um, one is just making it easier uh, to understand. Similar to how uh, what we just did with accessory dwelling units, like uh, just being able to look up Go in and make it and, and find easily uh, what it is that welcomes more people uh, to start these if they're, if they're looking to. Um, I, I liked Foxborough's framing where it sort of said uh, intensive and non intensive. Um, I didn't actually care too much for uh, some of the stipulations they put on, on um, the intensive versus non intensive, but I really liked the frame in terms of it being easy to understand um, and, and welcoming uh, for different types of, of business. There's The second one uh, will be parking. Uh, I, I don't know how uh, the wording has to look, uh, but a lot of these, uh, most of our streets have plenty of uh, street parking that goes unused 99% of the time, I'd say that most of Franklin. Uh, so a little less uh, pressure to put all Uh, parking, especially if it's a drop-in, drop-out type of place. Um, A a little less pressure to have to add add extra parking uh, on your own premises. Uh, I don't think it's it's a bad thing. Uh, The three is is really that manufacturing piece uh, that we said, and particularly food manufacturing. It it would be nice to know if we could put numbers behind what is a reasonable, um, at what point do we trigger being unreasonable in our uh, additions to stormwater and uh, sewer and grease and, uh, and everything like that, right? If we could put some number, um, you can you can make up to this, cook up to this, uh, produce up to this amount of waste, uh, that might welcome some of those um, businesses that are, are just trying to get their feet out uh, from under them. Those are three for me. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Kobe. Um I, I will Councilor um turn in, do you have any well, you would like to add? Questions?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, then this issue come up with the chocolate maker a few years ago. Yeah. yeah. And this is still this should still not be allowed, right? um,
0: yeah, so um, so that's why we, we actually spoke about this before to try to create a kind of a cottage food bylaw yeah. to add to this. Um, and that's where I was
2: headed. <laughs> So that's be <laughs> becoming as long as they have inside the grease trap, right?
0: Well, right now, yeah, you have to have a, um, a regular kitchen, food manufacturing process needs a, needs a commercial kitchen and a grease trap.
2: But as long as this doesn't look different. Well, we,
0: can have, we can have Kathy come up and, and talk about it yeah. if you want. Yeah. Yeah, come on up, Kathy. <laughs>
5: Hi. So you all know me, Kathleen Liberty, uh, Health Director. Um, So we do, we don't, but we uh, are authorized to permit residential kitchens in towns or cities that allow them. Mm -hmm. Um, And you spoke to cottage food. So basically, a residential kitchen is a kitchen um, that is under, has regulations over it that stem from the food uh, sanitation program that we enforce. So for us, it's more sanitation. Um, It would be, uh, uh, you know, cottage cottage foods are at temperature, right, room temperature, they can't be held cold, they can't be held hot, that type of thing. Personally, as a health department, I don't recommend uh, a residential kitchen. It's very difficult to enforce our regulations. And not only that, I mean, you know, when people are, are cooking or preparing in their kitchens, it's it's almost as if they're doing it for their family. So the cat walking by on the counter may be acceptable. Washing their hands before they start to cook may not be the first thing they think of. And there's so many regulations that we need to enforce, but we cannot be in their home all the time. And then there is also the issue of uh, generating grease. right? So all food, even coffee being poured down the drain, generates grease, and I know Brutus can speak to that more. But there's just a lot of regulations um, that we can't enforce and it's also difficult on the person preparing food right so they have to follow all these regulations but are they going to and and that puts pressure on them as well am I doing this right am I doing that right and we're not there so we we can go into a restaurant commercial business anytime we want We inspect twice a year, but if we had a complaint or this or that, we can go in any time. We're authorized to do that. With residential kitchens, most times we have to make an appointment after business hours, things like that. And so they're preparing for us to come. We're not gonna walk in and see the violations in front of us. So, I mean, some cities and towns allow it. I've been in cities and towns that do allow it. I just find it very difficult on both ends. So, Mm -hmm. I hope that answers your questions. Yeah, probably. yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: Good. Thank you. Thank oh, you're you, welcome. Kathy. Of course. Um, so, uh, so here's here's um, what I, I've been thinking. So there's a bill um, right now in the Senate. It's Bill Four Eighty Four. It's an act to promote economic opportunities for cottage food entrepreneurs. And um, I think that it is real. It's really super loose, <laughs> but. Um, if this passes, it's like, well, if this passes, what would we do um, to make sure, would, it probably wouldn't fit what Franklin normally does, but it might push us a little bit further um, into the cottage industry. And um, I think it would be interesting to go through this and to see uh, what um, what would be possible here. I know, like Councilor Frangelo mentioned numbers of, of Gallons of um, water used. I mean, maybe Brutus could come up and talk a little bit about grease traps. You know, like when do you need a grease trap, Um, and like how do we know? So there there could be people doing it now. We don't know until somebody finds out about it on Facebook. Somebody's trying to sell stuff, right? But. I think it would be better to try to know and to regulate it a little bit not a lot but then we could um, make sure that our waterways are okay we're not getting a lot of grease in them. So I'm going to throw it to Brutus and like CFE.
6: Thank you Madam Chair. Brutus uh, Energy Public Works Director. I, I guess what I'm up here to, to do is protect our infrastructure is, is what I'm trying to do and you know, not it's all the same, but if you if you think about the pipes under the ground, you know, if, we've, if the if the sewer pipes out here and the collection systems for sewer, in a commercial area, they're kind of designed for that. We know we're going to get some high flows and stuff like that. But when you start thinking about our neighborhoods in town. They were really never designed to have commercial industrial kitchens in there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this Jones brought up, maybe one's not a big deal. If you have four or five, it could be. And then there's so many different products that could be put out there. And, you know, one that comes to mind was the, the guy that wanted to do chocolate. We always talk about grease. Um, we we actually call it fog, fat oils, and greases. Mm-hmm. And um, believe it or not, soaps they use to clean, they, 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 they clog the pipes up. And they do a lot of different things. So, you know, I've I've talked to, uh, you know, Doug Martin, he's the expert engineer on it. It's hard to say what it would be done, but I I think the only fair and reasonable thing to do if it was gonna be allowed to have to have an outside grease trap is we require, you know, all the businesses in town to do. And, you know, that's that's a cost. And, you know, that could be, you know, a couple thousand dollars. But at that point, it's their responsibility to maintain it too. You know, we have to start monitoring when it gets cleaned, when, you know, take care of it. Um, if it does fail, it's usually gonna fail on their property initially, so they end up getting taken care of. But um, that's that's to protect you know, all the all the users of our system to do it, you know, because we have to go we have we have areas in town that you know we have to send our back to truck out, you know on a regular basis and clean the best we do. Um, for example we had uh, the 7 Eleven when they did it. Every time business you have know, a big don't make people do it, but they're gonna do a rental right When the 7-Eleven came in, they did it. You know, we made them put an outside grease trap in. Their, their argument's like, we're just doing hot dogs. But as you go in there, it expands from hot dogs. And there's a lot of grease associated with hot dogs. They're gonna do a lot of cleaning in there. So, you know, we make these upgrades. But, you know, and I can't say the business model that different folks are gonna do, you know, they, they got their profit, where they're gonna be, they got their expenses, their labor, and everything else. But it should be a cost that's associated with just to protect our assets
0: right so um so are there different size grease
6: traps well yeah i mean it, there's grease traps that you could do like internal grease traps like under a sink yeah. but i am tight you they don't work because <laughs> you're using hot water and it just it keeps the it keeps the, the fog moving through there so you have to have a basically an outside type tank that allows the, the mixture to go out there and cool it's just basically like um a box you put in your septic system. The oh, we actually all saw
0: it in the, in the um,
6: sewage treatment plant. Yeah, that was so a big uh, one. That's a really big one.
0: Councilor Sheridan and I went down to the basement and yeah. saw the big grease. And the
6: there. stuff falls down there, and you know, the grease flows on top, and the effluent goes out. But um, yeah, they're pretty much standard size that you have to do. Um, it, it is an expense, but it's, you know, I get to protect the system Kathy, and you know, we've got to it many, many times, right? And businesses aren't happy about doing it either. So. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah, you've heard. <laughs> they call you a couple of times, right?
0: That's okay, though. I know. <laughs> okay. Does anybody have any questions for Brutus?
1: Um, Jamie. you Metro. Just really quick to piggyback on Brutus's issue. It's not just also protecting the asset. It's also, as I know, all of you know. You know, if there was a problem, it becomes a blame game. Right, and where do you delineate, where the public problem is versus the private property problem. And those types of issues have to get worked out because when a private homeowner has a problem, problem if they have a backup, if they they had a backup in their sewer system on their private property from disposing of things in their toilet, they're gonna call us to come fix the problem. And then we'd say, no, that's in your toilet, that's your problem. And so think of what we go through with trees. (laughs) <laughs> three feet one inch who's responsible there's always a lot of emotional opinions on this because if the private property owner has to fix the problem oftentimes it's thousands and thousands yeah. of dollars and so those are I'm just laying that out as like another sub issue that to Brutus's point not just protecting the asset but also helping the homeowner protect their asset and then not getting into any litigious situation where it's their fault no it's the private property's fault and we get into a big debate about um, or a legal situation, kind of like a sewer backup. But we have those, all, you know, often, and oftentimes times those are litigious, right? Whose fault was it? The contractor, the town, the private property owner, the consultant, the engineer? Are there flushable Sorry. wipes, non-flushable wipes there you know whose fault it is? What it yeah, right? Uh, Jamie brings up a great point. It, it, like, you think about a neighborhood? <laughs> <laughs> to go with Liz, right? Yeah. People, right just. So, I mean, it, there, there is, I appreciate the but of Wipes, but I just wanted to add that on to Brutus's point that um, there's, a, there's an enforcement issue that's here and very rarely does the resident say, oh yeah, it was our fault. Yeah. It's kind of like what Brutus says, like nobody ever calls in and says, you know, my water bill is really low. <laughs> I would like to make sure I, you know, I used a lot more water. Can, I, can, I, pay, can, can I, I pay you know, extra money hands? for the there's water that I used? You know, no one, and, and it's not a critique, it's just, just how you know we're projecting out some of the issues that are going to be uh, likely of concern in this debate thank you
0: I, I agree that there's there's potential issues um, but I also think it's worth talking about and thinking yeah. about and having a discussion about because we can we know how much water people are using right so then we'll know if they're if all of a sudden it goes really high then like what are you doing You're like, you like right. or do you have a leak sure what are you doing and and then so we have a way to to know certain things that are going on in the home
6: the one thing that you know jamie brought up that's got me thinking and when we sit here and you you talk about like a lot of visual things about like the parking or you know extra trucks and all that stuff the problem that could happen this day i don't have a proper grease trap is is the grease is going to slow down somewhere and it might not be in front of their house that we can say oh it's your problem it could be seven houses down. You know, it goes into the first manhole or a dip in a pipe. So now you cause a backup there. It's not. It might not even back up that person's house. Mm-hmm. It could be 14 houses up the road that we have a sewer backup that we have to deal with. Right. So then you really get the finger point. Well, wow, that guy's making you know hot sauce in his I'm house. Well then you right? find
0: out, right?
6: Well, no, you don't. You don't always. You know, and then it, but it could cause other residents, and that's really. You think an extra parking spot's bad? Try talking to someone when their sewer backs up in their basement three feet. Uh, not pretty, So, um, but that can really cause a lot of angst.
0: Did you so have to wear your poopy shirt. I
6: right? know. Ah, yeah. <laughs> my wife says, when I walk outside with the yellow boots on, she goes, that's not good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a sewer issue. I understand, I understand there's issues and there's scary things we have to talk about. Yeah. Um, but I think this is more, This is more about kind of like really low volume, Um, like the woman that now has her own donut shop because she started making donuts in her apartment. Um, And that's the kind of thing. So when Councilor Frangelo said, is there a number? Um, And if we can make it friendly, then we have a list of everyone, and then we'll know. Um, So that's, I don't, you know, like that's I don't want people to be afraid of that everything's going to get back because I think I, I think it's really um, a low volume thing we're talking about.
6: It's tough. It's tough, but, tough on the product and what's yeah. going to use. When you say, like, extra water use, extra water just could be great because it flushes it out. Right? <laughs> so people okay. don't use a lot of well, water.
0: Thing, but that is, it's a good thing that they use more water, Yeah. right? But yes. you know you know that, like, sure. there is a bill. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah.
7: But,
2: Okay. Can you say anything to a homeowner if they have a lot of
6: water? No, we send them a bill and they usually call us. Why is <laughs> oh, my water is so high? Because we, we do have, if folks at home don't know, the more water you use, you have a higher tier system. So you actually pay for more gallons to you use per unit. So, but if they're in the business, I mean, it, all relatively, water as a commodity is very, very cheap. To, mm-hmm. to purchase, especially if you're in the business. That's not that's not the killer for you. And, and nor is the sewer. I mean, that's not what's gonna make or break. It's all the other products you're gonna need to do in labor, obviously.
0: Right. So. right. I mean I envision people just going to the grocery store themselves and not having deliveries. Once people start getting big deliveries of things, I'm like you then then you need to go find a kitchen somewhere and do your stuff. That's right.
5: another
6: Yeah, but I think you know it's like I don't know, you talk about donor purchasing how many businesses have started in their homes? You know, that's with, what I'm, like, that's, and it's a great no, thing, no, thank and, all you. and, yes, and entrepreneurs, I mean. <laughs> and you know, I, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But I, you know, it's, it's my job to protect the system. And
0: yeah, that's I just, know. That's I, know. I know that. I know that, Bruce and you do a good job. Oh, well, thank you. So we, so we thank you. um you have a question for others?
4: Well, that just kind of spirals back to what I said earlier, but I think we yeah. should limit, put a limit on proximity and the amount that go in one neighborhood for just that reason. Well is the impact it has on residential neighborhood. I mean, the fact is that these are residential neighborhoods. Right. And it's, it's just something to take into consideration. I do have a question for Gus.
0: You sure, um, we have a chance. And is um, is Is that the yeah, Okay, because we're going to go to Judy and we're going
3: to
0: change the agenda. Okay. 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 Ask, ask Gus. Hi, Gus. Hi. How well, are
8: you? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning,
4: sir? Uh, I just have a curious question. I, I had to think about this from, I think I can't help it being an electrician I have to look at this from a, a code perspective and, and I, I don't know too much about the building codes per se uh, as I do electrical So I'm going to kind of frame this question in electrical terms um, If somebody starts a, a home occupancy type business and they change the use of their kitchen per se to commercial type use. Uh, the one thing that runs through my head is that I'm looking I'm thinking about is continuous loads and demands that would that wouldn't have normally be calculated into the square footage of a residential house because according to mass according to electrical codes I can take a demand factor on a residential home of 87% which means it wasn't necessarily calculated to handle what is now to, to be a continuous load based on the work that's being done in the residential house that wasn't initially intended for that type of work how does that change the, the code because the, I, I would see people needing service upgrades um, how does that change from a zoning perspective uh, or I should say building perspective in
8: regards to this house not being used for commercial use Gus Brown, building Commissioner. for you, Madam Chair. We don't get that bite of the apple, so to speak. Someone may do it and upgrade their service and we never know that they're increasing the load in their kitchen. Let's face it, a lot of kitchens are pretty high-end these days, Mm -hmm. What do people do. They have to upgrade services sometimes for that. And maybe I can knock down some of the misconceptions about home occupations. We issue just about every one that comes through the door. Mm -hmm most times people that are in violation of our zoning bylaws they stick out like a sore thumb and we generally send them a letter and tell them to stop but to be honest with you i'd be lying if i said we get those people and then they pull the wool over our eyes well they, we don't we get someone that's got a small office that wants to run an internet business mm-hmm. low impact we try to limit deliveries and shipping out of the property only for their personal use, not from the business use. We ask them to get generally a um, a, a mailbox somewhere else because we've had problems with neighbors complaining about high impact traffic for deliveries of businesses that are being run illegally. Mm -hmm. So it's a snowball effect with them doing something wrong right off the bat and now they're impacting the neighbors and upsetting them by having these massive deliveries. So we've learned over the years that Everybody comes in nowadays with that business verification form looking for a TBA. I feel that they're doing the honorable thing by coming to me first. And we generally issue them because they're they're trying to do the right thing to increase their economic outlook Mm -hmm. on on what they can bring into their household with the internet. That Mm -hmm. has probably sparked, aside from COVID, that probably sparked more than anything Uh, People doing this from their homes Mm -hmm. because they're not traveling as much anymore. They might have lost their job and now they're they're looking for some some niche in life um, to get by, and it's working. I think you look at what the clerk issues for DBAs out there. I don't want to say I do five a day. That's that's over the top. But some days there are five Mm -hmm. that we do, and they're renewed. Um, The clerk brings in income. I think every three years or four years they have to be renewed. So that's good economics for the town and it's good for the, the people that are doing it. So it's a success story. I, I understand, you know, about the cooking and all this. There's many things that, that um, are sidebars to cooking out of your own home. You know, the noise, the smell, the deliveries, the this, the that. But we don't, honestly, we don't get a lot. And the people that do want to do cooking out of their houses, they, eat, they're the squeakiest wheels. They want that. They know that their product is gonna sell millions, and I don't blame them. That's the American way. But generally, it's better off served in a commercial environment. Understood. Okay. Thank you, Gus. Appreciate your input. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Gus. Thank you,
3: well, you Counselor Jones. Um, I think we I can uh, be happy to introduce Judy if you... Okay, all that. right. I think we're
0: gonna go on to our mm-hmm. second agenda item. So we get to Judy, she's
3: waiting patiently, um, and so we're gonna discuss 40R with Judy and uh, Brian. Thank you, thank you, yes. Um, yeah, 40R, as the Secretary of Development Committee knows, is one of your priorities, priority projects. Uh, it was number one in the MAPC Franklin for study, as far as recommendations. Um, and uh, they, they did provide, MAPC provided some Guidance on what it should what it should include and things of that nature, but as I went through the issues, I thought that I really needed get a little extra help. Um, so at the end of the last uh, fiscal year, um, we have a small contract with uh, uh, Barrett uh, Planning Associates. Associates, I believe. I'm sorry if I messed that up, Judy. Um, and uh, Judy uh, has been doing um, planning work and for a long time in the state, and I I, I think that she is, she's also, by the way, uh, uh, Barrett's working uh, with Beta on our master plan. Mm-hmm. She's also uh, playing a big part in that. But um, I, I threw a few issues out uh, in email form, and I said, you know, can you give me a, a, a basic structure of the of, of cost and things? The number one issue that we are dealing with is 40R. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, A 40 r zoning bylaw, which is also, I I like to think of it as a smart growth overlay district, um, is intended to encourage uh, smart growth, increase affordable housing, Um, it it fosters uh, distinctive, attractive neighborhoods, compact design is an issue there. So there's a lot of great things about it, uh, if we do it right. Um, Judy is going to take you through a Pre- preliminary draft bylaw that we've established uh, that we, we've come up with. She came up with, I've gone through, edited it a little bit. We still have work to do, obviously. Um, it basically, that bylaw provides the zoning structure uh, that is needed uh, for to go forward with a 40 r zoning bylaw. And so she's gonna take you through the basic structure of the bylaw and also discuss what else uh, we would need to do In addition to that specific zoning bylaw that we actually drafted, and she has uh, 15 minutes to do so. So, Judy, the floor is her So, thank you. Can you all hear me? Yes, Judy,
9: thank you. Okay, so I'm going to um, show some slides and then I'll talk about the specific draft of. Uh, of the zoning bylaw. I hope I had screen share. Can somebody give me screen share permission? One
3: second.
9: Okay, super. So what I'm going to do is just to make sure everybody's on the same page it's a little bit of a high-level overview of this statute and a little bit of comparison at the end of how this is similar to and different from the MBTA communities law and then I'll stop to create sharing the slides and I'll bring the zoning up. I think it's just the best way to do this. Okay. So, Chapter 40-R was enacted by the legislature in 2004, and and it kind of came at the heels of of a scenario that we're still in today, which is a certain amount of concern about the lack of housing production in Massachusetts, Um, but also the the legislature was interested in addressing community concerns about the potential for an adverse fiscal impact um, on the town or city or town (laughs) additional housing development. So there are two pieces of 40R. The the thing about 40R that you need to understand is that um, in order for you to adopt a 40R district the Executive Office of Housing and Livable Communities has to approve that zoning before before it goes to your council. So there is a process that's a little different from normal zoning. Um, But I'll talk about kind of what that looks like and what it takes to apply what the sort of basics are with 40R and and so on. Um, so the, the, this law has specific goals and you're almost, if you've been following the MBTA community stuff at all, you're probably gonna see right away where some of these differences exist. So the purpose of chapter 40R was to promote and is to promote mixed use development. It is, however, fundamentally a housing bill. Um, and so there are, there are districts under 40R that are not mixed use, they are entirely housing and they have been approved. There are other districts that are mixed use as a requirement, and they have been approved. And there's been, I think, really an uneven track record in Massachusetts as to how successful some of these districts have been. Um, but some of them have been great, and I, I don't, I don't wanna take anything away from 40R. I have, I actually think it's a great statute. So it, it has these kind of objectives. It's mixed use development where it makes sense to do so, increasing the choices of housing in a community, especially affordable housing um the goal of the law is to promote kind of compact kind of downtown type development so a 40-hour district that will be very appealing in the eye in the eyes of of uh, what i'm going to call hlc from here on which is housing and livable communities is something that's really in an established area where you're trying to promote say infill um, or maybe some vacant land near an established area and you have the ability to promote more housing there uh, ideally it's in a transit um, oriented or transit adjacent location it doesn't have to be but that of course is kind of a primary objective of the law the development that is allowed under a chapter 40 R overlay district must be allowed on an as of right basis so there's an efficiency and permitting requirement um, you have to have a special sort of plan approval process as part of a 40 R bylaw and I think the intent is that The development community and the officials in the community and the planning staff and you know everybody sort of gets together to work out how this zoning uh, will work there are minimum density requirements under a 40-hour bylaw um, and it varies by housing type so for single-family detached homes the minimum density uh, is eight units an acre for two or three family dwellings such as like an attached single family or row house it's 12 units an acre and for multifamily, which means buildings with three or more units uh, in, the, in the building, it's 20 units an acre. So those density targets are actually in the statute. So there's not much flexibility with them. To, to do this zoning, you have to have kind of a local public hearing to consider the zoning. You apply to housing and livable communities. I can't believe I didn't change that acronym, but it's housing and livable communities. Um, they determine whether that zoning is going to meet their requirements. Once you have a letter from them that says this is fine, we will approve this. Then you go to your council with the zoning um, to to adopt it. It's only when and you'll get a, you'll get a certain amount of funding once you adopt the zoning. But the real f- sort of financial benefit of 40R happens when there are building permits issued for units that could not have been built without the 40R zoning. So it's a little bit different zoning process than what you're used to where um, you're initiating something, it goes to the council, you adopt it, and you know you don't necessarily have to have state approval. In this case, you do. Um, when you apply to HLC for approval of a district, you have to, there's certain things they require. They wanna know where the district is, so the locator map is kind of like, where in your community is this district going to be? You have to analyze how much develop, development could happen under the proposed zoning and there's a special spreadsheet model that has to be used to show how many units you think you're going to be able to create that you could not create without the 40R, and that's a very important number up front because it's going to determine how much um, funding per unit you're going to get when building permits start to be issued. Um, You have to have a plan for how you're going to, uh, you know, accommodate this zoning in your community. It it may or may not be a formal master plan amendment, but there has to be something about what you're trying to accomplish in this zone. Um, You have to have a housing plan and sort of show that what you're proposing to do is substantially consistent with that housing plan. You have to show what the underlying zoning is so it's very clear that the 40R is actually enabling something to happen that couldn't happen otherwise. So it's a pretty, pretty, um, the application package isn't easy but it's very straightforward. Um, I've worked on a couple of them. They're They're not that difficult. So what you have to address in that zoning is this is an all-inclusive permitting framework. You don't have to go to the Planning Board and the Zoning Board of Appeals or get back and forth between the two. It's it's a single board making the decision. It's as of right development, so site plan review or something like that is what you would use to review a project, but there's no special permit. Um, there's no discretionary permit, rather, that a board could turn down. Um, it must address housing and it should address mixed use, but again, they're not really requiring that even though that is sort of an objective of the statute. Um, You do have to provide for a mix of housing. You can't have anything anything else in your zoning that would impede development, like a moratorium on multifamily development or some kind of building permit cap. You cannot put age restrictions on the housing, and you must provide, and this is significant, a minimum of 20% affordable units. So that is actually in the statute. There's a minimum affordability requirement of 20%. This is where these two things are different, I just thought I'd better do this so that everybody understands, because there's a lot of questions about 40R, 3A, what is all this stuff? So, you know, 40R um, does promote mixed use. It's a lot, you know, you, you know, there are ways in which they're kind of similar. Um, 40R allows you to require it. Um, uh, the MBTA Communities Law does not. Both statutes encourage, as of right development, they actually require it. Um, Both prefer kind of a transit-oriented location. Um, The 40R statute does require affordable housing. It does require state approval before the zoning is adopted. It does require multifamily 20 units an acre. And the density is determined under Chapter 40R very differently. It's based on the parcels you're proposing to put in the district. So you're evaluating density on a parcel by parcel basis. And I think it's important to know, 40R, although ultimately is, it has is become part of your zoning, it is not actually part of the Zoning Act at the statutory level, it is a separate law. And, and that is really ends up having some significant importance for how these two laws differ. Um, because it, it comes down to how you're defining density. Um, in the MBTA Communities Law, you, you can allow mixed uses, but you cannot require them. Whereas you can under Chapter 40R. It is as a bright multifamily development. If you want to allow other things in your district, that's fine, but you have to be able to show that someone can build at 15 units an acre rather than the 20 that 40R requires. Um, there is a cap on the affordable housing as opposed to a minimum requirement. Um, under the guidelines for MBTA communities, you cannot require more than 10% affordable housing unless you can prove that a higher threshold won't make um, development uneconomic. Um, when you're trying to figure out the density of a, di- of a district under, ch- under MBTA Communities Law, you have to include land that you would never include under 40R. And that includes things like the rights of way in the streets. Um, it's, it's a lot of land that's mixed in that really is not going to get built on. Um, because but because that's the way the Zoning Act defines um, gross density. And this is part of the Zoning Act, which Smart Growth District is not. So, well, if you hear about, you know, why can't we use 40R for MBT Communities District, the fact is, you know, you may be able to do that, um, but I hope I just shut off screen share. I guess I didn't. There we go. <laughs> uh, you may be able to do that, but it's trickier than perhaps people might know. So with that, I'm happy to screen share the zoning in the draft form that it's in. And I will do that now. Can you all see this? Yes, we can. Yeah, I'm never sure, you know, when you're-
0: (laughs) I don't know if I can read it, but- I can see it, there's something there.
9: Yeah, um, and I don't want to bore you with a word by word on this. I guess I just want to tell you what this is. So, like any other zoning, I just made that smaller. That was kind of dumb. There. You know, like any other zoning, you always establish what is this thing. So there's always a statement of purposes. Um, and and to in a way for someone who is reading the zoning to know where does this apply so when you establish the district you also amend your zoning map Um, and that kind of becomes part of the bylaw and it's it's part of the zoning map so people know where does this apply what are the purposes of the district and where does it apply Um, the other thing about an overlay district and this is true for any kind of overlay you have to establish um how does someone take advantage of this district how does someone use this and if they don't want to use it then what are their zoning rights and the fact is the zoning rights are whatever the existing zoning says so the overlay district doesn't take anything away someone can still continue to develop and whatever that underlying zoning says but if they want to take advantage of any piece of the 40r overlay they are subject to all the rules of the 40r so they can't pick and choose and that's really what this applicability section is. is a very long explanation of, of what it is and how it applies to the zoning. It's basically telling the applicant, if you apply for approval under this section, you're subject to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a plan approval process in here that intends to make it very clear that the plan approval process for 40R is not a special permit. It isn't as a right review process. Yes, you can impose certain development standards, but when DHCD wants to see the bylaw before you adopt it, it's to make sure that you don't have development standards that are so prescriptive and so limiting that someone really couldn't reasonably anticipate being able to build at 15 or excuse me, at 20 units an acre. I think when I start confusing these laws. Um, so a lot of what's in here is how is this plan approval process going to work? And this is not gonna be all that strange to anybody who does permitting. You're filing with the town clerk, it starts a clock ticking. The approval authority, let's just say for the sake of this discussion, it's the planning board. They have a certain clock they have to meet in order to, you know, to be able to say that they, they met their statutory requirement um, and, and acted on the, on the application in a timely way. Um, And there's a provision for what happens if they don't do that. And it's a lot of this is very similar to the way zoning works. So this whole section um, that's sort of the Smart Growth Development Plan, which is sort of section four, is really laying out what do you have to give the board to show that what you're going to do and that you meet the requirements of the zoning bylaw. Um, This particular uh, version says that the approval authority is going to have a public hearing just like they would for any other site plan review process, but there's very specific timelines that have to be met in order to show that the approval process happens overall within 120 days, and that is part of the statute. So you can continue the hearing, but only with the applicant's approval can you go beyond 120 days. So uh, the, the approval authority reviews the project, they may ask for some changes, the applicant makes some changes. It's down to the point of making a decision the approval authority has to prepare a written decision just like they would for anything else, laying out the reasons for the decision, um, and then seeing that that is filed with the town clerk within 120 days. There are standards of review that are in here under what's called criteria for approval. Um, and this is really kind of a recitation of what the requirements are in the zoning. The board has to find that all those requirements have been met. Um, there is a conditional approval process that may involve um, some you know uh, the developer might come in with a plan that's at a certain level of development um you know doesn't necessarily want to spend a fortune on that upfront uh, permitting but he sort of gets a conditional approval um and then wants to come back with a more detailed plan at that point spends more money and now the board can kind of really look at it through the lens of of some more detailed design standards um there are criteria for denial and they are pretty much the same legal standards for site plan approval for any as-of-right use. Um, one of the things that 40R provides for is a, um, a limit on the effectiveness of the site plan decision. And that is two years, um, which is not uncommon for site plan review, although some towns have upped that now to three years based on changes for special permits under the Zoning Act. Um, if a person isn't happy with what the board decides, they can go to the land court or superior court. The bylaw provides for a um, of the, the approval authority to adopt rules and regulations, so you don't have a lot of stuff in your zoning that doesn't need to be there, like how many copies of the application you want, what are the specs for, um, for the site plan. I mean, those things can be in rules and regulations. You, you just don't really want to burden your zoning with that kind of stuff. Um, There is a provision for the approval authority to waive certain requirements Uh, if in the case of a particular submission some requirement just doesn't make sense the board can say oh you don't need to to do that. Um, There is a process for modifying a plan once it's been approved which is important because it's not uncommon for any of you if any of you have sat on a planning board or a CBA uh, you probably know that sometimes plans change so there needs to be a way for the board to say. Here's a minor change, we can approve it administratively. Here's a major change, you kind of need to come back and and go through the permitting process. Um, This does provide for the adoption of design guidelines. And I'll just tell you what happens with um, housing and livable communities. When you go in for zoning um, pre-adoptment approval, if you haven't adopted the design guidelines yet, that's okay. But they will not give final approval until they see the design guidelines which you may not develop until after town meeting has approved the zoning. Uh, and the reason, again, is just to make sure that there's not stuff being tucked into design guidelines that's going to make development difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is housing affordability. Is uh, somebody try to ask me a question? Because all I can see right now is my my zoning. All right. Am I going too fast or, or what? No, no, it's okay. We're, we're, okay. we're paying
0: attention and we're... <laughs> okay, all right, I, mean, I can't see we're... you right now.
9: I can't see you so Um, so there's a whole section here on housing affordability um, that is intended to align with chapter 40R so you know this is something I got to point out Um, this 20 um, the the number of so-called affordable units in this draft says 25% you're no longer going to be allowed to do that so let me tell you a little bit of background on this when 40r first went into effect um the it, the statute says minimum of 20 percent so guess what communities said they were pretty smart about it. it's like well if we require 25 percent and it's a rental development all the units will count right everybody did that well no more <laughs> now <laughs> what they're saying if, well, what they're saying is if you're trying to use your, they, they've given two, two versions of this. One is if you're trying to use the, an MB, uh, a chapter 40R district to satisfy your MBTA requirements, you can't require more than 20% in 40R. But you don't have to prove that that would be uneconomic because 40R in fact requires you to do 20%. Now what they're saying is there's going to be no more 25% 40R uh, districts, so it's going to be the maximum the maximum will be what the statute calls the minimum which is 20 percent um so let's just make that really clear um there are requirements that the affordable units have to meet a lot of this is going to be very familiar to many of you in franklin um you know it's you have to base affordability on what someone can pay who is lower moderate income uh, which is basically 30 percent of their gross monthly income is the maximum they can pay per month for housing cost There is a there's a requirement for kind of fair marketing, you know, fair housing marketing and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, The units have to be comparable to the market rate units. As as construction is proceeding, they have to be kind of constructed and offered on a pro rata basis with the market units. Um, You can't have affordable units that are smaller than the market rate units. They really do have to be comparable, and there is an affordable housing restriction required that will keep those units affordable upon resale or, or re-rent. Um, so this is really standard affordable housing zoning. There's nothing particularly mysterious about it. Um, so a lot of what's in this section is just about how you figure out like what's eligible and how you're gonna pick tenants and so forth above the affordable housing can, and require. There's really nothing in here that's kind of magic. It's It's pretty standard inclusionary, what we call inclusionary zoning. Uh, and then there's an administrative section so this just lays out how the affordable housing unit requirement will be administered and monitored um, there is also a requirement in 4 r that on an annual basis you file a plan or a report rather with dhcd excuse me housing and livable communities as to what's been accomplished in the district especially if you're planning to request additional aid under what is called 40S, which is the subsidy for a gap in costs that may have been incurred for public education purposes in excess of what you would normally spend. So if you are planning to request additional Chapter 70 aid via Chapter 40S, then you need to report what your costs have been. But you also need to report because if you're claiming the building permits have been issued and you want to be able to get the bonus payment that comes with each building permit, you know, there's gonna be a way for EF, EF, HLC to know what you've been doing. So there's just this annual report that's required. Now, there are, other, there are some other things in here about definitions that will need to be added to your zoning in order to make sure that it complies with the definitions used in Chapter 40R. So I've kind of put these uh, in here as well. So let me tell you what this doesn't do for you. You can't really do anything. you can adopt this, but it doesn't bring you any particular benefit until you create an actual district. Okay, okay. You, that's very important. We have not created a district here. We have created the administrative framework for creating districts. Right. So, if you get to this section called Establishment and Delineation of Districts, what would happen is that as you create perhaps more than one forty 40 districts, district, each one gets amended into this section 185.51 as a sub-district. But you don't have to repeat all the administrative stuff because that's all covered in this. So this is like your umbrella zoning. And then on a district by district basis, you add them to this section 185.51 and whatever the dimensional requirements are that you want to apply on a sub-district by sub-district basis. But all the stuff about how you apply, what you have to submit, how the timeline works. You don't have to repeat any of that because it's already here. Okay. Does that make
0: sense? It does, yeah. yeah.
9: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um,
0: Brian has his hand up, Judy, so we're gonna
3: go over we, to Brian. Yeah, we, we actually have uh, no time left in your meeting essentially, but <laughs> I, I just wanted to say that uh, we would like to bring this back, um, whether you're, I believe you're having one more EDC meeting uh, on November 1st November 1st okay yes. um, I will bring yeah. it back whether it Judy's here or not and we will okay. we'll have a, a, a fresh copy of this document I'll have you'll have a cover memo you'll have some uh, other information provided at that time okay. and we'll we'll discuss um, and that and of course we'll discuss the other uh, the other issue we talked about tonight if that's what you'd like to put on your okay. agenda and,
0: um, what about like have you
3: um, maybe you've thought about oh, where the overlay should go yes I, <laughs> I, I know that um, I, I'm working on one uh, in uh, you don't have if, to tell us where yet. To well I'm working on day. I'm working on one and I know Jamie's got you have been talking couple, to people so there's okay. a couple of things that are going on oh, and That's you know good. you really could do two one two or five and really in, in but they don't have to be done all what you said at once obviously yeah. right Yes. So um, we'll see how that goes. Maybe by your next meeting, maybe we'll be able to share something with you. I don't know. Okay. But, uh, it's, uh, well,
0: well thank you, thank you, Brian, and thank you, Judy. Um, this is Judy. it's pretty exciting for me, and I'm sure Kobe's pretty excited too. <laughs> he's online somewhere, but um, hopefully and he's great.
9: Gonna... 40R is great. 40R is really great. And okay. it is wonderful. Does,
0: is Kobe clapping his hand there? Is that or does he? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Uh, thank, thank you again, Judy. Um, okay, thank you. Yeah, and um, with that, I'll take a motion to adjourn. I uh, have uh, a second. All uh, in favor? We have to do a roll call vote. Councilor Sheridan. Yes. Councilor Jones. Yes. Councilor Frangillo? Yes. And the chair says yes. We will um, adjourn.
9: So thank you for watching, everyone. Recording stopped.
7: We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. And by the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.